0: Um, and turn in your scriptures to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. We are in the season of Lent. It's this 40-day period, 40, 40 days plus Sundays, um, where we're drawing near to Christ, and we're preparing for his Easter celebration. It's a season of spiritual renewal, spiritual spring cleaning, involving some repentance And self-denial, but the purpose of that is greater freedom and greater joy in Jesus. And during these six weeks of Lent, we're looking at all of the adult years of the sacramental life. This is the period of years where we're giving our lives away, and today we're looking at sacramental leadership, sacramental leadership. This is really important because leadership impacts everything. Um, We all have a need to be led by somebody. And so you might even ask yourself the question, you know, who do I trust to lead, my, to lead me? Who do you trust to lead you? What are the qualities you're looking for as a role model, a guide for living, whether inside or outside uh, the faith? Um, but maybe someone who's a spiritual father or mother, which carries a lot of power. So who are you gonna give that power to? It's an important question. Some of our most high-profile leaders have fallen hard in recent years and recent days. It turns out that they weren't the people we thought they were. There was a huge disconnect between their godly public persona and, in some cases, a downright evil inner life, private life, and they didn't match up. And so you personally may have been hurt by a leader that you once trusted and you, you may be asking the question, can I ever trust a spiritual leader again? And, and if so, who? Or maybe you're here and you actually aspire to spiritual leadership. You maybe one day would like to become a deacon or a priest or a missionary or a, or a church leader who just speaks in Jesus' name. And you're wondering, like, how do I fulfill that call? How, what's the path and how long will it take? Who does the church trust to ordain and commission for leadership? And you might even be thinking, like, how can I grow in spiritual authority? (laughs) And then finally, you might be taking on greater leadership at your home, in your workplace, or in your neighborhood. And you're asking the question, like, how can I grow in influence uh, to, to lead others with? You might feel ill-equipped. Right now, you have too much responsibility and too little help. One of the reasons that we ordain deacons and priests in the church is to release the priesthood of all believers. That's part of the whole point is that you can can be released to be priests in God, representing Jesus wherever you go. Um, So sacramental leadership is super important. Who is, who is qualified to be a visible sign of God's invisible grace, of God's invisible love? Who can, who's qualified to, to symbolize the unity of the church? Who's qualified to symbolize Jesus? Well, no one. And nevertheless, there, are, there is a way. There is a path. And Paul's going to, it's the path of the cross. And Paul's going to, to talk about how this was worked into his own ministry. He's gonna give us three things that every sacramental leader is supposed to carry really close to the chest, everywhere they go. These are internal qualities that must be true before there's any kind of external ordination or commissioning. It's the smell of Jesus. It's the stories of God's people. And it's the sufficiency of the spirit. Like, in other words, being good enough in the Holy Spirit. The smell of Jesus, the stories of God's people, and, and the Spirit's confidence, the Spirit's sufficiency. This is what Paul had. This is what he's extolling to us. Let's look at the smell of Jesus together. Um, 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 17 talks about smells. Um. And strong smells are provocative one way or the other. Um, They emit reactions either of disgust or delight. For instance, have you ever smelled bacon in the frying pan? Or cinnamon rolls fresh out of the oven? Oh, the smell of cinnamon rolls. Have you ever smelled roses in full bloom? Like fresh flowers in a fresh garden and it's just spring or a flowering tree. You're like, yes. On the other hand, what about the smell of burning plastic or cheap cologne or wet dog? Have you ever smelled that? Smells are provocative. Certain smells can bring back long forgotten memories as well as all of the deep and intense emotions that go with them. And Paul teaches that all legitimate Christian leaders smell like Jesus. They have the aroma of Christ. And the smell of Jesus is perhaps the most pungent of any smell. For some, it's a smell of delight. It's like that blooming tree. For others, it's a smell of disgust. It smells like death. Paul says in verse 14, But thanks be to God, who in Jesus Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. The Corinthian church had been captured by a model of leadership symbolized by the Roman emperor. The Roman emperor would, after a military conquest, and there was a lot of them, put on these parades. The emperor and the generals were in front They had their chests out. They had just won. And behind them were all of the defeated kings and the defeated generals, some of them dead, some of them imprisoned, being led along like this, carrying the smell of death. And incense would be burned to the honor of the emperor and to the honor of the gods that gave them victory. And that was leadership in the Roman Empire, and that was leadership to the Corinthian church. What Paul does is he turns this whole thing on its head. He said, you want to know what leadership is? It's not being in the front of that parade. It's being in the back. It's not leading the triumphal procession. It's being led in triumphal procession. It's Jesus who has defeated me. Paul, who used to be the enemy of Jesus, has wondrously, by his grace, defeated me and now leads me around He leads me all around the Roman Empire emitting the aroma of Christ. To some people, it's an aroma of death to death. For other people, it's an aroma of life leading to life. Verse 15 says, we are the aroma of Christ to God, almost like an incense being burned in heaven itself before God and he smells good to the Father. We are the aroma of Christ to God. Among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. The smell of Jesus is intense, it's polarizing because it is the smell of sacrifice to God. It's complex. You know, imagine the task of capturing the smell of Christ for a perfume or a candle. Like, can you capture, like, the smell of Christ, the smell of the cross? Can you capture that in a candle that we could sell at Bed, Bath, and Beyond? Can you capture this in a cologne that we could sell at Macy's? On the one hand, it's a stench. It's horrible. It's one of those horrible smells that make you go, oh! On the cross, the perfect son of God is pierced flesh. Imagine that the Son of God, the Holy Lamb of God is bleeding. And he's at the sewers of the earth, condemned, shamed. Jesus emits the stench of death and failure and defeat. His cross is a frank, rude, honest stench of our evil, our sin, our hardness to God. This is what it is if you externalized it. It's a rude smell that confronts polite society. And many who smell it are offended and put off. It's a stench and it's offensive. But on the other hand, the cross of Christ is the most beautiful smell in all of heaven and earth because it is the fragrance of God's great love, it is the incense of forgiveness. It's the aroma of heaven breaking into earth, new life, new creation. It's the frankincense and myrrh of being made right with God. Everywhere Paul goes, Paul emits the fragrance of the cross. In his preaching and in his living, he preaches Christ crucified, and he lives the life of Christ crucified. Paul has the smell of Jesus. He smells bold. He smells honest. He smells urgent. He's already dying. He's already dead to sin. And he's like living as someone who already has a life hidden in Christ in heaven. And it's provocative. Like everywhere Paul goes, there's, there's like provocative things. You can't stay neutral. You can't really stay polite. You have to sort of begin making decisions about about Jesus and about where you're going, and is it to life or is it to death? You consider the smell of a burning house. If you're in that house, the smell of smoke, the smell of burning is provocative and it's meant to provoke you into life and out of death. And this is the way of Christian leadership. It's smelling like Jesus. One Christian leader who smelled like Jesus, who had the aroma of Christ, was a man named John Stott. Now, John Stott was a famous, um, like world-famous evangelist and pastor and expositor, a big name in his day. He's written a lot of commentaries, and I commend all of them to you. One of his colleagues remembers an early ministry trip with John Stott. He says this, on the previous night, we had arrived in Argentina in the middle of a heavy rain. The street was muddy and as a result the time by the time we got to the room that had been assigned to us our shoes were covered with mud. In the morning as I woke up, I heard the sound of a brush. John Stott was busy brushing my shoes. "John," I exclaimed in full surprise, "What are you doing?" "My dear René," he responded, Jesus taught us to wash each other's feet. You do not need me to wash your feet, but I can brush your shoes. John Stott's preaching and John Stott's living emitted the same intense fragrance, Jesus Christ. And he did it in his own way, in his own personality. One of John Stott's longtime roommates, someone who shared an apartment with him for five years, um, said this about him. John was known all over the world, but when you met him, he was the most devout, humble Christian man. His private life was no different from his public life. It was the same person. That's another way to say that he had integrity. There was no posing. Now, posing is the way of celebrity pastors, celebrity leaders. They may preach the gospel, but they don't, when you get up close and personal, they don't have the aroma of Christ. They don't smell like Jesus. Now, Paul refers to these kinds of leaders as peddlers in verse 17. He calls them peddlers. Verse 17 For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. What do peddlers do? They treat the word of God as something to be bought and sold like a commodity. And they are, in many ways, in the religion business or in the leadership business. They might be sweet and kind and charming and have lots of charisma and say all the right things and never really say the wrong things, but at the heart of their ministry, there's no sacrifice and there's no cross. Paul will describe these kinds of leaders as, he'll call them super apostles. They're sweet talking, they're manipulative, they're charlatans, they're pretenders. They have a godly brand, but they don't have a godly life. And they peddled the word of God for money. There's an old saying he smells not sweet who always smells sweet. She smells not sweet who always smells sweet. How can we begin to emit the smell of Jesus? This is for Christian leaders, and these are for for people who who want to follow Jesus and have spiritual influence wherever God calls them. I like Paul's phrase here, men of sincerity, women of sincerity. Paul was really honest about his weaknesses. He did not pretend. He did not pretend. He was honest about his failures. He wrote one time about how he fell asleep in a basket, and it was just this embarrassing ministry story. He included it in his letters, like, this is who I am, guys. That's that's where the aroma of Christ is usually smelled the strongest. Hey, you know, in an appropriate way, here are my weaknesses, here are my limits, here are, in some cases, my failures, and here is how Jesus is being strong through them. Here's how his life is flowing through them. Um, and I think that's where it begins for, for leaders. It's we begin to get honest. If there's no place for us to be honest, we have no business being in leadership. And for those of us who are called to leadership, Who are in leadership, your response to trials and setbacks and suffering and difficulty is your greatest ministry. The smell of Jesus, the aroma of Jesus. Paul had it. He commends it to us. Secondly, he commends to us to carry around not only the smell of Jesus, but the stories of God's people. The stories of God's people. Here's an important question for all leaders of those who aspire to Christian leadership why? why are you doing this? What are, you, what are the little trinkets that you're collecting along the way in your leadership? In his book, The Pastor's Justification, Jared Wilson writes this, shameful gain doesn't have to be about money. There are lots of things that we can shamefully hope to gain for ministry or leadership. Attendance numbers, pledge cards, Altar call respondents, prestige, power, book sales, Twitter followers, pats on the back, the list is endless. The super apostles, Paul's uh, opponents in Corinth, his rivals, what were they collecting? They were collecting five-star reviews of their preaching. They were collecting letters of recommendation, which are, it's the parchment version of Yelp for preachers. They're collecting lots of people saying lots of great things about their ministry giftedness. They were looking for upvotes, invitations to the next speaking opportunity. Now, letters of recommendation sometimes served, as many good things do, a legitimate purpose in society. It was like, well, how do you know what kind of a person someone is unless someone you trust, says, hey, I, I commend this person to you as a minister. But they were abusing this. They had, they had turned this into some kind of foul object, some idol for their own egos. And, and, and Paul calls this practice out in verse 1. He says in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Instead of collecting letters about him, Paul and all legitimate Christian leaders are collecting stories about God's people. That's the stories they're collecting. He says in verse two, you yourselves are our letters of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. All right. Imagine your apartment buzzer rings or your doorbell. Ding dong. It's the postman. It's the postal delivery worker. And you're like, oh, great. I'm getting mail again. You open the door and they say, hey, I have your letters. Wonderful, hand them over. Oh, no, 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 no. I actually don't have physical letters. All of the letters written to you are in my heart, engraved by the Spirit of God, symbolized in my arthritic hands, worked into my muscle memory. The only way for me to deliver these letters to you is for you to invite me in, for us to have table fellowship together, For me to pray for you, to hear your story, to minister the Spirit to you. Paul, This was Paul's ministry. He was going house to house, church plant to church plant, city to city, collecting stories of God's people, carrying them in his heart. And everywhere he went, he saw these stories of the activity of God all over the Roman Empire give birth to new stories. The Spirit of the living God once engraved the Ten Commandments and all of Scripture on stone and parchment. But now, the Spirit is writing in real time the stories of God's people being changed from death to life. And he's not writing their stories on sheets of paper anymore. He's writing them on the hearts of the evangelists, on the hearts of the city group leaders, on the hearts of the spiritual mothers and fathers, on the hearts of the pastors who are working with those people, watching in real time the activity of God changing people from death to life. Each act of obedience, each story of repentance, wherever someone is born in Christ or dies in the Lord, it's documented in the bodies and the hearts and the memories of the leaders who are bearing witness. John Garland, commenting on this passage, says of Paul, the repentance of the Corinthian church was no small matter to him. It mattered to Paul how the Corinthians responded to the Spirit of God. And it was being engraved. He was like a piece of parchment upon which their stories was being engraved. I talk with pastors a lot different denominations, different ages, different races, introverts, extroverts, thinkers, and feelers, pastors of small churches, pastors of large churches. Do you know what almost everyone shares in common? Almost every single one is deeply impacted by the choices their people make to follow Jesus or not. And they carry those stories in their hearts. You know, they don't talk about them a lot because confidentiality. But it impacts. It impacts us. Every choice you make impacts us. I was was talking just uh, the other day with a pastor in a different part of the country. And he was sharing with me with joy on his face, sharing with me and, and another pastor in our prayer group how he had walked into a situation with two family members that were estranged from each other. And he prayed with them, and he met with them, and he ministered to them. And by the end of the meeting, he saw God bring these two people together to the point where they were holding hands walking out of the meeting. And he was so happy. The story had been written on his heart, engraved. People ask me, like, Aaron, with everything that's happened, man, how is Emmanuel doing? And I was like, Emmanuel is amazing. I mean, I have watched Emmanuel sacrifice. I have watched Emmanuel walk in faith. I have seen their endurance. I have seen their love. I can't believe it. Your stories are being engraved on my heart and the hearts of all leaders, the city group leaders, the staff, the spiritual mothers and fathers among us. Your stories our letters of recommendation, and we are the parchment. Wherever they go, Christian leaders carry things close to their heart. The aroma of Christ, that smell of Jesus, the stories of God's people engraved deeply, and then finally, the spirit sufficiency. The spirit sufficiency. Sufficiency is having what it takes Do you have what it takes to lead? If God wants you to lead, he will equip you with his spirit. He will provide everything you need to be fruitful in your calling. Leaders need it. Leaders need sufficiency, otherwise no one will follow them. They won't influence anybody. They'll just be doing stuff off there in the corner, and in the words of one leadership thinker, If you're leading and no one's following, you're not leading, you're taking a walk. So how do you move from just taking a walk to actually leading people? How do you know you have what it takes? There's such a temptation to place too much trust in external badges of honor, like stoles like this, degrees, publications. A job in a desired field, acceptance by the guild of choice, internship or clerkship under a high-ranking leader, so much temptation to be like, well, if only I could get this around my neck, then I could lead. Now, these are all good things in themselves, but in themselves, they, they don't make people sufficient to lead. Trusting them too much is a sign of what we might call horizontal sufficiency. Horizontal sufficiency, human-to-human sufficiency. Hey, people say I'm a leader, so I must be a leader. This badge says leader on it, so that means I must be a leader. Or, you know, taken another way, horizontal insufficiency, horizontal insecurity. People aren't following me. I don't have the external badges of honor, so I must not be a leader. I must not be called. And Paul is calling us up out of that temptation of horizontal sufficiency or insufficiency to a vertical sufficiency, a vertical sufficiency, not from degrees or titles, but from the Holy Spirit of God. Verse four of chapter three says this, such is the confidence, the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Christian leaders have a confidence, a confidence through Christ to God. They have a humility through Christ to God. They point away from themselves to the one who deserves all the credit. Um, Every priest symbolizes this posture when they stand behind the Eucharistic table, when they lift up the fruit of our gift to God, the gift of our life that's symbolized in the bread and the wine. And And they pray by him and with him and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory are yours almighty God and Father now and forever amen It's not by me and with me and in me it's by him and with him and in him it's in him it's in Christ to God that's where confidence and humility comes from it's where the sufficiency comes from it's what in sacramental traditions the ministers symbolize being in Christ to God a living sacrifice This is meant to be a protection, and I'm grateful for it. A protection from horizontal security or insecurity, either from pride or disillusionment and discouragement. One pastor illustrates this. Uh, He told a story called Palm Monday, and the story goes like this. The little donkey awoke with a smile on his face. He had been dreaming of the previous day. He stretched and then happily walked out into the street, but the many passers-by simply ignored him. Confused, he went over to the crowded market area. With his ears held high with pride, he strutted right down the middle of it. Here I am, people, he said to himself, but they stared in confusion, and some angrily struck him away. What do you think you're doing, donkey, walking into the marketplace like this? Throw your garments down, he said crossly. Don't you know who I am? They just looked at him in amazement. Hurt and confused, the donkey returned home to his mother. I don't understand, he said to her. Yesterday they waved palm branches at me. They shouted Hosanna and hallelujah. Today they treat me like a nobody. Foolish child, she said. Don't you realize that without him you can do nothing? Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. The Lord Holy Spirit does all the heavy lifting in ministry. Yes, we work hard. Yes, we work on skills. But those are not where our best ministry comes from. It's not where our confidence, security, or position comes from. It's not where we get our anointing charisma does not an anointed leader make. Yet with him, with the Spirit, he can do far more than we could ever ask or imagine. This is why Jesus said, you will do greater works than me. And he was speaking to the whole church. This is why we look for signs of the Holy Spirit working through a person years before they are ordained. So if you're considering ministry, As a vocational call, I actually have written a letter, um, written it in the last couple of years, updated it, and it provides guidance, and we'll make that available to you this week if you're interested in learning more about pursuing ordination or, or being a missionary or other kinds of ministry call. Who is equal, Paul asks, to such a task? To the task of Christian leadership? Wherever God calls us, who is, who is sufficient to be a spiritual mother or a spiritual father, to impact people for the kingdom, to see people go from death to life, and to have stories written on their heart? I want to end with a poem. It was written for our bishop on the day of his consecration as a bishop by his wife. It was given to him on the day of his ordination by his wife, Catherine. And it's based on the story of Elijah. And it's as if God is speaking to anyone in ministry. It goes like this. Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. You are only made of atoms, and mountains will have to move. Water will need to come from stone, and you will have to live on more than bread. Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. I have food you know nothing of. The food is mine, prepared for you by angels at the hearth of heaven. This, my hand, will feed you. Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Your prayers cry out for ancient fire, but it is living and will singe your skin. This, my hand, made pure by fire, and I will baptize you with it. Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you, those who have not bowed to Baal must be gathered for the approaching rain. This my hand that gathers oceans in a water skin will turn the waters. Arise and go, lift your robes and run. Do not fear the evil at your back. I will meet you in miracle and mountain where you will be afforded, where all will be afforded. This my right hand is yours. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.